The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Sounds like a job for Superman. Yeah, that would have made a truly great story, wouldn't it? Forget the story, Clark. Metropolis needs Superman. Why? Now you think he could have stopped any of this? Or that? No. Not even Superman can be everywhere at once. Then what good is he? Well, what he can't do, it doesn't matter. It's the idea of Superman. Someone to believe in. Someone to build a few hopes around. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 22nd, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be And welcome to the show today when we will be talking about drinking, driving, and personal responsibility. TV or not TV? Is that a question? I'm not too sure. Take a look at the market. Take another view. World look of a world leader on the market that might not exactly coincide with what we heard from President Obama this week. And of course, how can we not touch upon the big story of the week, Obama mania itself, and the 44th president of the United States, Barack Hussein Obama, who was sworn in day before yesterday. So welcome to the show. We'll be starting with that subject. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in or leave a comment with us. You can also email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com or visit our website with all the archived shows going right back to the first show of Just Right at um, www.justrightmedia.org. Well, the burden of expectation is enormous. Those were the words of BBC News people that I saw covering the, um, the Tuesday events in, in Washington. It looked like the Roman Colosseum there, didn't it? Some of the photography there it was right out of a Cecil B. DeMille movie, i got to tell you. But uh, interesting, you know, I was listening to uh, Professor Don Abelson, Director for American Studies here at uh, University of Western Ontario, on a radio interview over this past week, just prior to Obama's uh, inauguration. His comments about the outgoing Bush presidency versus, say, the incoming Obama presidency were interesting, to say the least. Um, And here's sort of what I got from it. Obama's strength, he argued, was is that Obama's proving himself to be a listener. You know, he listens to those people around him. Now, on the other hand, Bush's weakness was that he was listening too much to the people around him, and that represented bad leadership. And, you know, when I heard those two comments, two totally different judgments based on the exact same uh, point to make of each leader, I think that pretty much sums up the whole Bush-Obama thing. When you're in, you're in. When you're out, you're out. Uh, even if it's for the same reason. The same quality in one man is a virtue and the other a vice. And I'm not talking about vice president here either. <laughs> vice presidency. Uh, you know, Obama mania has swept not only America, but the entire world. 
And, of course, there can be no doubt on any grounds that uh, Tuesday passed was a historic day by any measure. And, in fact, because I've already dealt with the significance of Obama's presidency just after he became president-elect, I don't really want to revisit what I think by now are fairly obvious elements of the significance of Obama's election, Um, not the least of which is the matter of race, because we've been there and we've done that. So let's move on. Uh, Emotionally, I have to tell you, you might be surprised by this, I was quite positively receptive uh, to Obama's speech. Uh, Intellectually, it was very ambiguous, a completely ambiguous statement, which might be the best thing to say on an inauguration speech, kind of geared to please all the people all the time. And uh, when he spoke as a domestic president, I thought his speech offered many contradictory policies and philosophies, many of these uh, can lead to haunting possibilities, and I'm sure that when the opportunity and time allow, I'll be putting those words under a microscope. But when Obama put his uh, commander-in-chief hat on, and you'll be hearing some of these clips later, his message became startlingly clear. And in specifically addressing a message to the Muslim world, I think his statement was just as blunt as anything George Bush might have said. But today's not the day I intend to make any detailed analysis of Obama or my expectations of him. I commented on some of that as well on that previous show we did on him. But today I want to talk a little bit more about the public reaction to Obama, the public's expectations. And uh, certainly they've, they definitely have elevated this man to a Superman status on, you know, on whom some undefined, subjective, and vaguely anticipated hope has been pinned. And I've already heard a few people remark, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, or the higher they get, the further they fall, or something like that. And uh, there's certainly a lot of that already going, going on. So there's a, there's a definite conflict between reality, which most people don't like, and expectations of, of the leader that they've just elected. So on the London Free Press, January 7th, a new model for America, writes Lisa Van Dusen on January 17th, who makes the following argument. Quote, Bush was still taking, or sorry, still talking in comic book terms of good versus evil and fanatics versus freedom, the cause in whose defense his administration cut so many freedom-protecting constitutional corners. If the United States isn't spending all its time on fighting whatever it defines as evil in any given week, it will have more time for the ongoing daily work of diplomacy, she argues, end quote. Of course, that's not her whole argument, but that was the main part of it. Now, while I agree that Bush put into place some offensive legislation that contradicted the nature of America itself, I think what this writer has done, whether consciously or purposely, is to essentially deny even the possibility of any kind of true evil existing, as this is apparently a matter of subjective concern. People think that good and evil are just a matter of what you think they are, and that's it. There's no objective reality to them. I know that she wrote this before she had the opportunity to hear Obama's inauguration speech, but I still wonder how she would advise Obama to be diplomatic with those nations who, as Obama himself expressed, quote, raise a clenched fist to America's open hand, end quote, such has been the case with Hamas in Gaza during the weeks past. Uh, You know, if somebody tells you that they literally want to kill you and eliminate your very existence, exactly what is the proper diplomatic response? Oh, please don't kill me, just make me very sick, or just injure me and I'll meet you halfway on this? Is that, is that how you dip, 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 diplomatically deal with that kind of a demand? Uh, the same principle applies to all issues of dispute, whether they're about life or property, and there can be no compromises uh, with 
an evil political force that explicitly denies individual rights to responsible citizens. You just can't do that. It isn't going to work. You can't make those compromises. And of course, then there's the economy. Obama's already promised what has been explicitly called, quote, unprecedented deficits generally expected to exceed $1 trillion in a given year. That number alone, uh, a trillion, the number trillion, became a very useful tool for demonstrating the economic climate or environment that Obama has inherited. In a January 6 Wall Street Journal editorial reprinted by the National Post the following day, titled, Feels Like a Trillion Bucks, <laughs> we learned some of the following facts and statistics. And, uh, you know, they ask, how much is a trillion dollars? First of all, it's a number one with 12 zeros behind it, okay? But here are some of the comparisons they gave to give you an idea, to give you a feeling, perhaps, if you want to put it that way, of what a trillion dollars is. And they give six examples. One, a trillion dollars is the difference between President Bush's budgets of 2002 and 2008, the former being the first in U.S. history to exceed $2 trillion, the latter being the first to exceed $3 trillion. That's the budget now, not the deficit. Number two, the all but certain minimum deficit in the federal fisc in 2009. A trillion and a half isn't out of the question. So they're talking about in this year alone going into a deficit by a trillion to a trillion and a half dollars. That's deficit. That's spending more than the other three to trillion that they're talking about. A trillion dollars is also roughly one-sixth of the entire outstanding U.S. federal debt held by the public, one-tenth if you include intragovernmental debt such as Social Security IOUs. A trillion dollars is the drop in market capitalization of the American financial industry since last October. Since last October, that's, what, three months ago? A trillion dollars is the cost that Al Gore attaches to his plan to liberate the U.S. of carbon-based energy. And finally, last but not, not least, a trillion dollars is, quote, not even close to the unfunded liability of Medicare, which is $36 trillion over the next 75 year, years, give or take a few trillion, which works out to approximately $2 trillion a year, assuming constant dollars and constant prices for 75 years. You think that's going to happen? And, you know, Canadians keep saying, oh, they don't have health care in the States. Yeah, well, how do they get this $36 trillion debt? They don't have any of these Medicare. It's called Medicare. And they're in the same problems with their limited Medicare that we are with our full, what we call universal Medicare. It doesn't work no matter what degree in which you try it. And, quote, as for precedence that Mr. Obama is presumably looking to, economists estimate overall outlays for the New Deal at about $32 billion or $500 billion today. Now, so they're comparing the New Deal with uh, equivalent dollars today. Dwight Eisenhower's interstate highway system, which still remains the largest public works project in the United States, was originally estimated to take 12 years and cost $25 billion. How long did it take? It actually took 35 years and cost $114 billion, which is more than $800 billion in 2008 dollars. It's funny, too, because we talked about how that's the way it was with Germany's Autobahn built in by, by Hitler to stimulate the economy as it was heading into a tailspin before the war. Created a lot of jobs, don't you know? But the editorial continues, quote, The only specific American endeavor ever that tipped the trillion-dollar scale was the Second World War. That war, in which 16 million U.S. troops fought for four years over two fronts, cost about $4 trillion in adjusted dollars, or $17 trillion in today's GDP. 
Leave it to Mr. Obama and Congress to make even World War II seem like a relative bargain, end quote. And that's from the um, Wall Street Journal. Now, as if to put an an exclamation point on that Wall Street Journal's editorial, the headlines alone in a subsequent National Post editorial by Jack Mintz, University of Calgary, on January 8th read, quote, fiscally challenged. The permanent expenditures in the Democrats' proposed stimulus will haunt the U.S. for years to come. It is a lot easier to carry out fiscal stimulus now than to pay the bill later. End quote. So for those pinning their hopes on Obama to be able to solve or even address a handful of, uh, of these issues, to say nothing of whether you know, he makes matters better or worse, is to place upon him, I think, a burden that may well be both unfair and unjust in a way. So far, he appears to represent a mixed bag of contradictory policies, at least in terms of his statements, and of his approaches to government, uh, some significant, some not so. So for now, I would think the best approach to politics, as I guess as always, is to assess the policies uh, one by one against a given standard and, of course, against the dictates of reality and see what picture presents itself. But, um, you know, for today... I guess only one such policy really has been concerning me since I've been harping on it for the past few weeks and on several much earlier broadcasts of Just Right. And that's this idea of stimulating the economy with government money. But first, let's take a quick break. And when I come back, we'll address that idea. And let's hear from Obama himself as he himself addresses that issue in his inauguration speech as we return on the other side of this quick break. On this day, we gather because we have chosen hope over fear, unity of purpose over conflict and discord. On this day, we come to proclaim an end to the petty grievances and false promises, the recriminations and worn-out dogmas that for far too long have strangled our politics. We remain a young nation, but in the words of Scripture, The time has come to set aside childish things. The time has come to reaffirm our enduring spirit, to choose our better history, to carry forward that precious gift, that noble idea passed on from generation to generation, the God-given promise that all are equal, all are free, and all deserve a chance to pursue their full measure of happiness. is the question before us whether the market is a force for good or ill. Its power to generate wealth and expand freedom is unmatched. But this crisis has reminded us that without a watchful eye, the market can spin out of control. The nation cannot prosper long when it favors only the prosperous. Well, I guess that's one of those haunting proclamations Obama made in his inauguration speech that I was referring to earlier. Over the past few days, I've been watching BBC broadcasts relating to uh, a consistent pattern of failed bailouts in various European countries. Already, some banks and institutions are getting their second bailout and their third bailout to sustain them for short-term periods with no visible signs of progress so far. In fact, 
reports keep saying the markets are continuing to weaken. Uh, sounds exactly like the scenario, as we spelled out, that was uh, brought up by uh, economist Faustino Balve, who we talked about for the past two weeks. Fortunately, not all European leaders are in the same frame of uh, mindlessness, if you will. And once again, I find myself spotlighting a president of a country whose views on markets and individual rights, such as I've been able to read thus far, appear almost to mirror my own. Am I, like, am I hallucinating or something? Is, is, is this actually possible? And yes, there is another leader in the world today who clearly does not share the view you just heard by Obama. And that is the president of the Czech Republic, which has this month assumed the rotating presidency of the European Union, and that's Vaclav Klaus. I never cease to be amazed by what this guy's been writing in his occasional na National Post editorials. And in his January 9th editorial, Free the Markets, which was the title of it, uh, certainly no exception to that rule. Uh, I, I have in past read excerpts from at least two of Mr. Klaus's editorials. I think he and I must be reading the same stuff and have arrived at the same conclusions. But in response to the current, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there are some very valuable points he brings up here. And in response to the current economic crisis, uh, Mr. Klaus writes, quote, We should not panic and say no to people who, by describing the current, uh, you know, we should not panic and say no, he means say no, to people who, by describing the current moment as a historically unique one, want only to manipulate us. And at this point, Klaus acknowledges the reality of many of the world's crises, whether they're economic or military, but then writes, quote, the economic crisis should be regarded as an unavoidable consequence, and hence a, quote, end quote, just price we have to pay for the immodest and overconfident politicians playing with the market. Their attempts to blame the market instead of blaming themselves are unacceptable and should be resolutely rejected. The Czech government will, hopefully, not push the world and Europe into more regulation, more nationalization, deliberalization, and protectionism. Our historical experience gives us a very strong warning in this respect. Looking for ways out, we should, to use an analogy, strictly differentiate between fighting the fire and drafting fire protection legislation. We have to concentrate on the first task now. The second one can be done gradually, without haste and without panic. A big increase in financial regulation, as, as is being proposed so often these days, will only prolong the recession. Growth in the global economy is falling rapidly. The banks have ceased to grant credit and confidence is ebbing. Radically changing regulation governing financial institutions in the midst of recession is counterproductive. Aggregate demand needs strengthening. One traditional way to do this is to increase government expenditures, probably in public infrastructure projects, on the condition that these are available. So he doesn't want, want people to be making them up. It would be much more helpful, he writes, however, to have, and get this, a great reduction in all kinds of restrictions on private initiatives introduced in the last half century during the era of the brave new world of the social and ecological market economy. The best thing to do now would be to, to weaken, if not repeal, various labor, environmental, social, health, and other standards, quote-unquote, because, get this, because they block rational human activity more than anything else. Our historical experience gives us clear instruction. We always need more of markets 
and less of government intervention. We also know that government failure is more costly than market failure. We can also count on the fact that the Czech government will hopefully not be the champion of global warming alarmism. The Czech feels that freedom and responsibility are much more endangered than the climate. The uniqueness of current levels of global warming is not a proven phenomenon. The explanation of factors that are contributing to global warming is not clear or persuasive. Moves to mitigate climate change by fighting CO2 emissions are useless. And what is most important, human beings have proved themselves to be sufficiently adaptable to an incrementally changing climate. We should turn our attention to other really daunting issues. We, the Czechs, will treat others as we expect to be treated, with respect for different views. The EU presidency might give us a chance to make some of our views to the benefit of the citizens of all e EU member states. Their welfare and happiness will be maximized in a free, democratic, decentralized, open, and liberalized Europe." End quote. Now, this message, of course, is completely consistent with the views and arguments of the many, many economists of the past that I've been featuring on this show. Most recently, the Spanish-Mexican economist Faustino Balve on the previous two weeks' broadcasts. But most importantly, uh, Vaclav Klaus uses the proper philosophical arguments, like he, the proper metaphysical and the epistemological arguments for his case against government controls on economic ta activities when he says that they're wrong because, quote, they block rational human activity more than anything else. That's exactly the right reason. That is the essential point. Everything else is secondary. And the only other person in active politics whom I've ever s used this very essential argument of, is, of course, you've heard him here a lot, uh, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who's been heard making this very point on our program with some regularity. So when I find people who um, share these common understandings quite in stark contrast to the uh, political and philosophical environment in which they are immersed, I know that ironically, in contrast again to the kind of hope offered by Obama, that there actually may be a reason for true lovers of freedom to have some measure of hope themselves. Because in these status times, those are the people who seem to be in the most need of hope, if you ask me. But uh, I'm going to take a little bit of an early break because on the other side of these important messages, we're going to be asking another important question. TV or not TV? Haven't talked about the television industry for a while. Is that a question? And talk about old technologies versus new and a few of the other developments in the world of audiovisual entertainment right after this. As for our common defense, we reject as false the choice between our safety and our ideals. Our founding fathers, our founding fathers faced with perils that we can scarcely imagine drafted a charter to assure the rule of law and the rights of man, a charter expanded by the blood of generations. Those ideals still light the world, and we will not give them up for expedience's sake. And so, to all the other peoples and governments who are watching today, from the grandest capitals to the small village where my father was born, Know that America is a friend of each nation and every man, woman, and child who seeks a future of peace and dignity. And we are ready to lead once more. Recall that earlier generations faced down fascism and communism, not just with missiles and tanks, 
but with the sturdy alliances and enduring convictions. They understood that our power alone cannot protect us, nor does it entitle us to do as we please. Instead, they knew that our power grows through its prudent use. Our security emanates from the justness of our cause, the force of our example, the tempering qualities of humility and restraint. We are the keepers of this legacy. Guided by these principles once more, we can meet those new threats that demand even greater effort, even greater cooperation and understanding between nations. We will begin to responsibly leave Iraq to its people and forge a hard-earned peace in Afghanistan. With old friends and former foes, we will work tirelessly to lessen the nuclear threat and roll back the specter of a warming planet. We will not apologize for our way of life, nor will we waver in its defense. And for those who seek to advance their aims by inducing terror and slaughtering innocents, we say to you now that our spirit is stronger and cannot be broken. You cannot outlast us, and we will defeat you. are trying all sorts of things to uh, gimmicks and stuff to get people out of the living room into the theater. This is true. There's a theater in New York that has installed love seats. You know, the armrest raises so couples can cuddle. I feel bad for theater employees. You know, you thought it was tough getting the jujubes off the floor. <laughs> Not fun. There's another visual for you, huh? Yeah, there's another visual for you. TV or not TV? Is that a question? That's our topic today. And you can call us if you'd like, uh, 519-661-3600, if you've got something to say about the state of the television industry today. I know uh, the new season of Lost debuted last night. Uh, I got it on tape, haven't watched it yet. In fact, I must confess I'm still about a season and a half behind. And because it's the kind of show I'm going to sit down and watch in one run again, a season or two's worth. But... Uh, you know, since last year's television writer strike, which I'll be referring to again very shortly, I really haven't been doing very much on this show regularly about uh, the broadcast TV scene as I had started doing back in 2006 when we la- when we launched the show. Uh, if you take a look at our website at www.justrightmedia.org, you'll see that our earlier broadcasts were kind of chock full of commentary on current scripted programming, which is m- more what I like to focus on. Uh, which I had hoped would be a mainstay of the show in a more regular fashion. But, you know, in fact, the the last really close look we took at the TV industry was during the actual writer's strike or shortly thereafter. And, uh, you know, after that, the American pie music died, if you want to call it that. The writer's strike was over, and that was that was it. So I haven't been recomm- recommending really new shows to watch because there basically aren't any on the current circuit, what we'd call current um, network programming. So I've decided that how I will approach the subject of my commentary on various TV shows in the future uh, will be to do so on the basis of maybe I'll take a whole look at an entire series, because that's almost how people are, are getting them now. They're buying them in, the, in their box sets or they're watching them. And the industry's changing dramatically. We were talking about that momentarily. Or I might single out a, a, an episode of some scripted show that, for whatever reason, I may consider worthy of comment. 
But because so much time has really elapsed since our last foray into this territory, uh, several months at least, I thought I'd first try to catch up with a few trends and changes in the entertainment industry that I have been noticing in the newspapers during that time. At least according to uh, several of the news clippings I found accumulating in my, what I call my Hollywood etc. file. That's, that's where I put all that kind of stuff. And I remember the National Post used to have an entertainment section with that title, and I thought it was a great way to categorize a topic that can be kind of broad. And uh, here are a few of the items that floated to the top of that file after sitting in. Some of them are current. Some of them might be as much as a year old. I'm not even sure. I haven't checked the dates, really. And, uh, well, the first one's relatively current, and uh, this isn't so much about TV as, as general entertainment. And I was surprised to read this, actually, and this is about uh, records, music. The vinyl record makes a comeback, uh, says the National Post January 2nd, uh, Grant Surridge. Sales double as young people look to traditions, as the headline in the article tells us, that a music-buying public enamored with digital downloads may be abandoning the compact disc in droves. But one physical medium is staging a tiny comeback. Amid otherwise gloomy music sales numbers released by Nielsen Company this week, vinyl record sales doubled compared with the year before, rising from, from 990,000 units last year to 1.88 million units uh, this year. This year being, in this case, I think the reporting on 2008, of course. While vinyl records represent just a fraction of total music sales, their resurgence could not come at a better time for another under-fire segment of the music industry, and that's the independent record store. Almost two-thirds of the vinyl albums sold last year were from independent shops. And last year, sales of digital albums uh, rose 32% to 66 million from 50 million units in the year before. And over the same period, CD sales fell almost 20% to 361 million units from 450 million, Nielsen says. Figures for Canada will be released this month, SoundScan Canada said yesterday. Uh, It's funny, um, you know, I still have a lot of, well, I have all my vinyl records that I used to have. I haven't played my, even tried my turntable for a long time. And sure enough, this past weekend I had my grandson over seven years old, and uh, I, since the last time he was over, which was just a week or two ago, you know, you wouldn't believe what changes in a kid's life in a week, but he has discovered Elvis Presley, and he discovered vinyl records in the same week, so uh, that was a bit of an interesting story there. He was right into Elvis Presley, and we played some some albums that I didn't even know if my turntable would still turn, but it does, and, uh, you know, CD players, that was one piece of technology, went right by me. Uh, I went from from the turntable straight to the DVD player, which of course plays CDs, although that's not useful in your car if you've got a CD player, unless you can plug it in and carry it around with you. And of course, I never did get into an even older techno- no technology, the 8-track tape, which bypassed me entirely. But that's not the only technology that seems to be making what, they, what they're calling ostensibly a comeback. I wouldn't call this a comeback, but it's how it sounds in the headline. It says... And this is from the London Free Press, January 8th, 09. Oh, my God, these are current. And (laughs) it says, TV returns as home centerpiece. And in that article, they report that the television, the grand dame of household technology, should have a starring role again at this year's Consumer Electronics show in Las Vegas, where many gadgets are expected to show a slimmer and greener side in keeping with the frugality born of a tough economy. TV that allows consumers to download movies and shows directly to their sets over an internet connection. 
and three-dimensional 3D TV will be among those featured at the show, which begins uh, today, which in this case was January 8th. TV is the mainstay of the home, said IDC Canada analyst Kevin Restivo. It's one of those true recession-proof kind of products. People love their TV, and in tight economic times, they're going to want to watch them. And it says here Samsung has plans to show a TV that's only, get this, 6.5 millimeters thick. That's millimeter, not even a centimeter, not even a centimeter thick, a TV. Uh, is that almost like a piece of paper, or what are we talking about here? <laughs> it must feel like it. And the article goes on to mention um, other TVs with different features, from those that have built-in Internet service to those that allow direct rental of uh, movies and TV programs. One item that kind of caught my eye was Motorola's introduction of a cell phone, which was made of recycled plastic water bottles. And I was thinking when I saw that, oh man, the green reds won't like that since they insist water bottle recycling has to be for water only and you can't use that those, those bottles for other products because of course that requires production. And we talked about that on a past broadcast on this show. So one getting that's a little bit about some of the things in technology. Of course, we already know Blu-ray won in the DVD battle. I was going to ha- have a whole article on that in here, but I couldn't squeeze it in for today. So I wanted to touch upon what's, uh, what's been happening. The industry's going through a change, just like the car industry in a way. And um, I think we're seeing an end to what many of us grew up with, we might have called traditional television seasons. When, when we last visited the subject of uh, television programming, we left off in the middle of a writer's strike, of course. And I guess that strike proved to be more successful than anyone might have imagined because the strike ended and so did the scripted shows. And uh, strike another one for a great union success. And of course now, get, get this, now we're on the precipice of an actor strike. Uh, in a December 5th, now this is December 5th, 2008, okay, on a free press article by the Associated Press, uh, no author, the heading reads, quote, best to avert actor strike because Santa television viewers are still getting over the writer's strike, end quote. Now, of course, the the article was written as an open letter to Santa Claus because it appeared before Christmas. It actually started with the salutation, Dear Santa. And here are a couple of the parts I thought were rather interesting in this letter, which, by the way, did not have an author's name on it, so I don't know who put this thing together, but it came out of uh, uh, Associated Press. Uh, quote, the moment is, ri- or, you know, dear Santa, the moment is ripe for the networks to address our economic plight with relatable or yeah, relatable new comedies and dramas. Hello, we're in a recession. So I'd like to I'd like the gift of some new shows that face the audience's harsh shared reality with a little humor and even a little reassurance. And while you're at it, Santa, would you please step in before it's too late and ward off a strike by the Screen Actors Guild? Networks, studios, and viewers are still reeling from the writer's strike. How much worse will the TV scene be if actors and producers don't find common ground and their shows grind to a halt? Santa, please pass along this question to the SAG leadership. Are you crazy? (laughs) And here's a question you can ask the other side. Are you crazy? (laughs) One of the many likely results from an actor strike, just as with the writer's strike, would be an upsurge of reality programming to fill the gap. And this would happen, ironically, when the audience may at last be kicking its reality addiction. In a recent report, industry analyst Brad Adgate, there's a a name to have if you're in that business, eh? Brad Adgate, 
found viewership down for every unscripted show except NBC's The Biggest Loser. With the, with the strip <laughs> Malin of reality competition shows, each as indistinguishable from another, has the genre reached a saturation point? That's not to say there isn't hunger for fresh ideas, and I happen to have one. Santa, please pitch this concept to a network. I'll give you a nice percentage. I'm calling my show The Big Bailout. It's a high-stakes game show where the contestant who competes most ineptly with the least scruples wins the jackpot, end quote. (laughs) Well, there's a little bit of sarcasm for you. And, uh, you know, this past fall, newspaper headlines relating to the new TV season were just as depressing as as the economic outlook. Quote, uh, you hear some headlines, you know, TV viewers may suffer as actor, actors talk strike. Uh, fall brings trickle of new shows. Quote, nervous networks peddle boredom, says one. And in that latter article, Nervous Networks Peddle Boredom, writer Bill Harris, Free Press, May 14th, 2008. Now, this is going back almost uh, a year. He wrote, he wrote then, quote, We read something years ago about how, in terms of day-to-day living conditions in Europe, the great fallacy is that the Second World War ended in 1945. Prosperous time returned to North America fairly quickly, but in war decimated Europe, shortages, depressions, fatigue, and fatalism continued for many years. On a dramatically less serious and world-changing scale, that's the situation facing the big U.S. TV networks. Yes, technically, the three-month writer strike ended in February of last year, but its lingering impact will tarnish this coming TV season and possibly many seasons beyond. In terms of volume and quality, the U.S. networks just don't have as much to peddle as their upfronts at their upfronts as they used to. By upfronts, they mean the, the trade shows. And even the manner in which they're making their pitches has become glaringly budget-conscious. There's still a ton of good ma- good material on TV, but much of it's coming from the cable networks in the States, from overseas, and even, dare we say, from Canada. Rather than striding into the room chest-first, U.S. network TV has become the nervous guy in the out-of-date suit, attempting to appear confident rather than desperate, end quote. Boy, how much uh, those words sound just like the articles I saw written about the latest automobile shows in Detroit. It just sound, That could have been an article written about that, and yet this was written a year ago. So you can see that the economy and industry, all of them, are going through radical changes, so much so they don't really know what to do. But I hope all this leaves you happy, because that's where we're going to end on this, and we're talking about happiness and TV statistics. Hours spent watching TV, in which I saw an interesting article December 8th, by Ian Gillespie in the Free Press, who says, you know, the heading says, who says watching television can't make you happy? And after reviewing several roads to his happiness, quote-unquote, Gillespie concludes, to be honest, I feel happiness, happiest while watching television. That's why I'm deeply confused by a recently released survey of nearly 30,000 Americans which found unhappy people watch more TV than happy people. According to the study, published in the Social Indicators Research Journal, happy people reported watching an average of 19 hours of TV a week, while unhappy people watched about 6 hours a week more, which works up to about 25. TV may provide viewers with short-run pleasure, said researcher John Robinson, but at the expense of long-term malaise. This is precisely why I intend to continue watching TV until I accumulate enough short-term pleasure to last a lifetime, concludes Gillespie. And in yet another London Free Press article dated August 23rd, 08, quote, Why don't TV stars bother watching TV? 
uh, in an analysis by Fraser Moore, a rather informal one, he admits, it is reported that, quote, the average American logs four and a half hours of TV per day. Now, I worked that out. That's 31.5 hours a week, higher than either of the two uh, even suggested by Ian Gillespie in his article. So it just shows you how much you can trust the stats. Eh? You get, get one report says this, the next one reports that. I don't know that anybody really wants to admit how much TV they really, <laughs> they really watch. But he says, of course, this is a sum that should, should set off the get-a-life alarm. The writer contrasts this average TV watching time with that of TV stars, whom he claims, quote, just don't seem to catch much TV according to an unofficial survey spanning years of interviews I've had with them. That's the writer, um, Fraser Moore. Moore observes that stage actors love theater, film actors see movies, musicians like concerts by fellow musicians, but TV performers don't seem to catch much TV. They're busy, he writes. They have to be up early and they work late. Those are the explanations I've been handed, he, he explains. For most TV actors, apparently, watching TV is either akin to slumming or, unaccountably, none of their business. Moore has his own theory on the subject, he quote, and this is interesting. He says, quote, Society brands people who are gung-ho about TV as mentally challenged, hopeless nerds, or cursed with too much time on their hands. Little wonder if TV stars think that loving TV publicly might harm their reputation. I've come across a handful of TV stars who unabashedly, he writes, include themselves among the TV-watching masses. For instance, Ricky Gervais, the, the gifted actor-writer-humorist whose credits include The Office and Extras. And by the way, Extras is a masterpiece. I'm going to have to talk about that show one of these days. And he says, this is Ricky Gervais, quote, I live a very, very normal life, he told me a couple of years ago. The author says, I walk to work, I walk back from work. I'm home at 6 o'clock in my pajamas watching television. Sound like, sound like anything like you? <laughs> I don't know. Or would you admit it or put it on a survey? Well, that's it for TV. Next time we talk about TV, I might talk about some actual shows and uh, tell you some of the things that I've run across, shows that are worth watching, even if you can't get them on the network programming. After this, we'll be talking about uh, drinking, driving, and personal responsibility right after this quick break. We love to complain in America, too. Man, we just complain about everything. You know what people are complaining about now? How much coverage the JFK thing got on the news. My friend said, you know what, man, that's crazy. It was on for eight hours straight. Hey, you know what? You're not supposed to watch TV for eight hours straight. <laughs> Let it go. There's a guy that needs to get a job. You know what I mean? Or a girlfriend or a hobby or a dog, something to get him outside. You gotta drink, and drinking is cool. I like to drink. Like, you go to a club, and they tell you it's a two-drink minimum at the club, you know, and you get your two drinks, and you ain't thinking that I'm drunk. You just was at the club. But then you get in the car, and your car uh, start just going in the middle of the road, and you be like, whoa, I think the car want to do what it want to do. And this is never good, because the police going to pull you over and want you to take a test, and you be trying to tell them, I don't think I can pass a test tonight, you know, because I ain't studied or nothing for the test and and I have been drinking so that would be a setup right there in itself and I don't mind taking the test I just tell them I need time to study so I come back on Friday or something because I 
I guess he must have had to take that test on a Thursday. Uh, I got pretty well put together these facts that I could glean from a couple of articles from the National Post January 13 titled Golf Club Charged in Fatal Car Crash by Melissa Long and also from the London Free Press January 4th. Uh, Case, A Wake-Up Call for Bartenders by Tams and Bergman. Um, A court date has been scheduled this coming Tuesday, January 27, in Bracebridge, Ontario, in which a golf club and 16 of its officers, directors, and employees are being charged with 34 liquor license violations after a car crash killed three patrons aged 20, 20, and 19 of the club last summer. A 19-year-old female passenger survived with minor injuries. Now, this occurred in the Muskoka Lakes Township where the three had spent the afternoon eating and drinking in a club. Charged is Clublink, the company that operates the Lake Joseph Club, which faces up to $250,000 per charge with each individual charged, uh, subject to find uh, as much as $100,000. That means the individuals can get as much as $100,000, plus a year in prison, get that according to OPP Constable Maureen Tilson. Now, six months after the deaths of the golf club patrons, OPP laid 34 charges against Clublink Corp and its officers for, quote, allegedly allowing drunkenness and continuing to serve apparently intoxicated individuals. Uh, Quote, only three of the people charged were working on the premises of Waters Edge Restaurant in Port Carling on the day of the deaths, a beverage manager and two bartenders. Police have said alcohol and speed were definite factors in the July 3rd crash and drowning deaths of Tyler Mulcahy, 20, Corey Mintz, 20, and Kurosh Totonchian, 19. Over the next six months, I can see people being more careful and more aware and more scared, said Toronto-based Amanda Hebert, 27, who has worked in the restaurant industry for 10 years. End quote. Now, those are the basic facts I was able to glean from newspaper coverage, but the issue behind these, and so many charges like them, I think is what the real story is about. And that was addressed in an article, front page National Post headline, How Drunk Can You Get in a Bar? January 14th, just last week. Uh, charges send chill over bar owners. An uncertain line, reads the headline by Shannon Carey, who writes, quote, The liquor license charges stemming from a high-profile fatal crash in Ontario Cottage Country have raised questions about the obligations imposed on bar owners and employees. Simply put, how drunk is too drunk? Put another way, sellers of alcohol are engaged in illegal activity when they provide drinks to patrons, but somewhere in the course of an evening, that legal action can become illegal based primarily on the customer's intentions. Determining the tipping point can be an uncertain business. The Ontario Liquor License Act, which is similar to to the provisions in other provinces, is awash with rules for bar owners, such as a minimum price for beer or rules on serving food. There was even a special regulation included to permit beer service for spectators at a recent World Junior Hockey Championship in Ottawa because most of the hockey players in the tournament were under the age of 19. Can you imagine that? So they lower the age just to... If if they do it, it's okay. If you do it, you're you're a criminal. Uh, I wonder if somebody got killed there would be responsible for that age lowering. But uh, never mind that, you know, it's not going to be the government. Uh, The article continues, The regulatory scheme is increasingly trying to turn bar owners into babysitters for their customers, suggested Toronto lawyer Todd White, who successfully defended a bar owner who was charged criminally in 1999 when an alcoholic patron fell down and died. In this politically correct society we've got right now, what is never on the table is the voluntary assumption of risk. 
It is the government pointing fingers at people, Mr. White said. Not only are bars not permitted to serve drunk customers, the regulations impose a positive duty to remove the patrons if they are intoxicated, with a reasonable amount of force, he noted. They could also be liable for a civil lawsuit if the customer does not get home safely. And while there is an accepted level of alcohol in the blood that determines whether someone's impaired for the purposes of operating a vehicle under the law, there is no such standard for intoxicated. Intoxicated is not simply impaired, said Toronto defense lawyer Greg LaFontaine. Intoxication requires you to be in a state where you are unable to care for yourself. Three employees and each of the officers and directors of Club Link have been charged with permitting drunkenness on a licensed premise and also violating a section that makes it an offense to serve someone who's intoxicated or appears to be intoxicated. An Ontario judge noted that, that to be legally intoxicated, someone must be very drunk in a 2004 decision that referred to the principles explained Uh, by an Alberta court. The Ontario Divisional Court noted last year that intoxicated and drunkenness are similar concepts. Now what is unusual in this case, and I'm still reading from the article, is that it's rare for people to lay charges against so many individuals in a company for alleged Liquor Act infractions on a single day. It is also one of the most high-profile Liquor Act prosecutions in Ontario, in an area where offenses normally result in a quiet plea bargain a provincial court usually resulting in a fine. It is unusual, conceded Constable Maureen Tilson, a spokeswoman for the OPP detachment in Bracebridge, which investigated the case. But it is because the accident was horrendous. Three young people were killed, said Constable Tilson. A spokeswoman for the Alcohol and Gaming Commission said yesterday there's an ongoing investigation of the events at the Lake Joseph Club and it could lead to a licensing hearing. And quote, Well, it sounds like somebody's trying to put this club out of business. Maybe some official has a brother-in-law who wants to open his own licensed establishment. I don't know. Something smells rotten in Denmark here about this case. And it'll be interesting to see what additional facts arise when the case begins next week. Because I understand the police have not even yet released the blood alcohol content of the driver and his passengers. I don't know. Do they they look at the passengers, too, or just the driver? Why are you responsible for three if (laughs) if only one was driving? But here's the issue as I see it. How can it be reasonably argued that one person is personally responsible for the actions of another person? I think to to cross that line is to obliterate the concept of responsibility entirely. You can only be held responsible for your own actions, period, end of story. Now, I'm not among those who think that bar owners, you know, have any liability with regards to the off-premise actions or intentions of their patrons. Um, basically, that's the case, except in two circumstances, I think, and that's still on their, tr- on their terms, and that would be in which a, where they could possibly be held responsible on your own premises, and you'd be, po- you'd be responsible for the patron's safety, not his actions or his intentions. Okay, that's a whole different, different area. It's like trying to uh, analyze hate, hate crimes and things like that. And that would be possibly where a server aggressively and knowingly pushes with witnesses, uh, you know, watching alcohol on a patron who's visibly intoxicated or drunk, impaired, whatever you want to use, whatever the politically correct word is. Or I think the second one would be where the server or employee of the establishment knowingly, and again, that has to be rather witnessed, allows a visibly intoxicated uh, person to step into a driver's seat of a vehicle intended to be driven away. 
But to expect any more of a server, I think, technically requires that server to know a heck of a lot about his customer, customer more than I'd want to tell somebody about me. The law, I mean, already, it already demands that the age of the customer must be known to, uh, you know, up to 19 years of age. The establishment would further have to determine if anyone's 21 years of age or above and if that person intends to drive after drinking. Because, of course, uh, now we have special rules in that category. And what about patrons who are drinking but aren't driving, are not driving? How do you take a census like that? Especially if the establishment is really busy and there's a high turnover. Uh, I know I remember trying to work in a situation like that. I couldn't even remember which customer was which. Some of them looked alike, and I didn't know which one I was serving or helping out. And uh, you know, what about drinkers who show no visible signs of intoxication, uh, who are more likely to be the alcoholics, by the way, but whose actions may otherwise be utterly oblivious to the drinker who might be in a blackout period e- even, you know? Uh, and why is it always that the source of the last drink a drinker consumes is the only entity that's held responsible? Now, everybody knows that many drinkers arrive at establishments already intoxicated or drunk. And even if they don't have an alcoholic drink at the restaurant, but still leave intoxicated and get in trouble, what's to stop authorities from holding the servers responsible for letting him to leave even if they never served him? I don't get it. I mean, if, that, if, if, that's, if you're your brother's keeper to this degree, then just being near a drunk, you're, you're his parent automatically. That's what the law is saying. You know, to say nothing of a law that requires servers to use reasonable force to evict a patron. We're, we're, the contradictions are amazing. I, I can see the... Would you try that? You think you wouldn't be sued? Uh, it's just amazing. The, the, the rationalized arguments to justify this redistribution of personal responsibility, I think, is very unjust and certainly immoral. It, it's unjust to hold one person responsible for the intentions and actions of another merely on the basis of having been the last person to conduct an economic transaction with them. And I think it's immoral for the same reason. Once you cross that line, you can target just about anybody you want with legal action. No absurdity becomes too absurd. And, uh, you know, we, of course, completely dismiss the responsibility of those entrusted to look after these circumstances for us. You know, why aren't the police held responsible for these accidents? Uh, They could have a permanent officer stationed outside each and every bar before its patrons embark on public property, which, by the way, is their exclusive responsibility to police. And what about the law itself? It could absolutely prohibit driving with any amount of alcohol in one's bloodstream, so why are not our legislators held personally liable for such incidents? I want to know. Uh, I heard a discussion recently about whether or not it was acceptable to force repeat drunk drivers to to display a tag, sticker, or some other scarlet letter on their vehicle to help other drivers identify the drunks on the road. And I'm thinking, you know, not one person in, d- in the discussion suggested that such drivers maybe shouldn't be on the road in the first place. Hello? <laughs> and, and, you know, and every finally, just to close off, every time we say the phrase, and I hear it all the time, don't drink and drive, or... If you drink, don't drive. I think we're sending the wrong message, since the inherent logic in that statement gives a psychological permission to consider the matter after you've already consumed alcohol. To say nothing of the complications created by that gray area, which allows certain levels of alcohol in the bloodstream while you're driving. So I think the proper way to state the intended message is this, quote, if you drive, don't drink, end quote. End of story, nothing left consider. Except, of course, the left itself, which is always the philosophical source behind the destruction of individual responsibility and the freedom that is its natural consequence. But that is it for this week, folks. 
We hope you'll join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I'm too worried about my big belly up here. You know, television, they say television adds 10 pounds. So you can tell I've been on a few shows. <laughs> <laughs>